Amen. Amen. First Samuel chapter 19 this evening, the maniac monarch who is still considering Saul. We can't get away from him. And uh, it's what God want, wants us to really consider. That's why there's so much information about him. And let's just be grateful he doesn't do this with all the villains. <laughs> that, would, that would be really tough. Well, Saul's demonic obsession with murdering David, and that's what it is, cold-blooded murder. That's what he wants. Uh, it's now expanding. Uh, we read about him planning to kill David or attempting to kill him four times in the 18th chapter. In this chapter alone, it's eight times it comes up, at least. Depending, again, how you count. You can, there's some hints of it where you, could, you might want to count that as an attempt. But he's under the influence of evil, and he's bloodthirsty because of it. And his son, Jonathan, the heroic peacemaker, he's going to try to reason with his father. It will appear to succeed, but it will fail. Saul hunts David because God has blessed David, and Saul despises it. And he cannot get away from the words of the prophet Samuel that we find in 1 Samuel 15, Yahweh has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. I've repeated this verse through our study in Saul's life, well, David's life and with Saul, because they're so, they answer why. At least they get us close to why this man was such a fool. How the flesh just consumed him. Even on the eve of his death, Samuel will bring that up to Saul. You'll be with me because God's taken the kingdom from you. Because you're a knucklehead. God's given you every opportunity and you spit in his face. Now you're going to die. You get that in chapter 28, where he again repeats what I just read from chapter 15. From the grave, he's preaching that message. And we listen and say, this must be big news. It must be something for us to pay attention to. Because the emphasis is so strong. He would never willfully give up the throne. He couldn't care who was dethroning him. In this case, it was God. No matter what God wanted... We would say it this way, no matter what the Bible says, that person's going to continue to sin like that. Without shame, without any resistance. Saul's not even resisting the sin at this point. And he will spend the rest of his life clinging to what he cannot hold. What has already been removed from him. You would think a sane, spiritual person would say, if God doesn't want me to have it, I'm better off without it. I better just let it go, especially with all of the circumstances surrounding this story. The same is true of the world. Satan, the god of this world, and how he influences those individuals who have the ability to influence society and change customs and times and events the entertainment industry has is a very strong voice, very powerful. I mean, you can't watch a movie where they don't slip one profane word in. At least got to have one. Okay, the movie's good now. Now I can enjoy it. I was so hoping you'd put that word in it, but what it has an impact. They get away with it, so they push more. The world, they are resisting the cross of Christ, since the cross of Christ, Satan's throne has been deposed, has been stripped from him. The world is no longer rightfully his in, in that sense. John's gospel, before the cross, on his way to the cross, Jesus said, now is the judgment of this world, and the ruler of this world will be cast out. He said, when I, once I die on the cross, I take the deed, the title deed of the earth. They take possession. The power of Satan to damn souls will be no more. Well, he still can damn souls. But because of the blood of Christ, 
souls who would otherwise be damned will be delivered. In that sense, keeping this tight to the story that we're considering here of a king who God has uh, deposed, and Satan is, is very similar in that he's lost, but he's still going to fight. That's what I want to say. And Saul, being evil now, uses or Satan using it through Saul, the force of darkness, to make the life of this innocent man, David, uh, miserable. And uh, the shame is passing away at a faster rate. When the Holy Spirit is not welcomed any longer in the life, then he leaves that life. He abandons that person. And as a result, the void is filled with other things that aren't from God. We're told with Saul that a depressing spirit from the Lord came upon him. The Lord allowed it. Metaphorically, Saul, because of this, is a time bomb ticking away. He explodes from time to time also. David is shielded from the explosions, but others, others are not. He's embittered, never forgetting those words of Samuel, which were God's words. Saul's life is a necessary course on the flesh. And I think that if you have a chance to speak to unbelievers, these are the type of characters you want to bring up to them. You want to ask them questions. Like, have you ever, if they let you get that far, have you ever heard the story of King Saul? And you could do it over a series of times. There's so much information. You can ration it out. I would tell these stories over weeks. I said, well, that's enough for now. Let that sit and we'll get back to it next chance we get, next coffee break or whatever. Uh, just a tremendous resource for witnessing to lost people because everybody can see right and wrong in the life of, of King Saul as he chases David. And, of course, David, Saul's original plan is to have David killed. It backfired. David was uh, successful against the enemy, increased and remained alive, increased in, in, in fame and remained alive. And so we look at 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 30. It's the last verse in chapter 18, right before we start chapter 19, obviously. Then the princes of the Philistines went out to war, and so it was... Whenever they went out, that David behaved more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so that his name became highly esteemed. Well, that's not what Saul wanted. He was sending him to fight the Philistines, hoping they'd kill him. That backfired. Now, now verse 1, which goes with it. Now Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants, that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted greatly in David. So Saul says, it didn't work. The Philistines blew it. If you wanted to get something done, you've got to do it yourself. Done right, you've got to do it yourself. So he, he just said, okay, look, they failed. Can you guys just kill David at his staff meeting? The, the darkness that is in this empty heart, full of darkness, but empty of God. David didn't deserve this. What did he do to bring this on himself? We don't have to do anything for the enemy to come after us. Um, you don't have to do anything for spam to come your way, <laughs> telemarketers to come after you. Psalm 35, a psalm of David. Let not them that are my enemies without a cause rejoice against me, who hate me for nothing and wink with their eyes. See, he, 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 he lived that way with Saul hounding him, and I'm sure there were others in his life that just hated him because he was good. And we'll see in this 19th chapter quite a few types uh, fulfilled in Christ. This, these things that David went through would be very much parallel with what the Lord faced himself, being hated without a cause, being hated for doing good, the first one we come to from John's Gospel, chapter 15, Jesus said, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. thing is, and that word hated is destruction. It's not, they don't just hate us. It was coming, becoming more and more clear. 
that uh, they have a desire to destroy that which they hate, the object of their hate. Uh, other religions can blow up buildings and kill people, but Christians better not do it. Kind of a attitude going around. John chapter 15, Jesus said, but this happened that the world might that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in the law. They hated me without a cause. He's quoting David. And so Christ was also hated for doing good, as David was. Now, as I mentioned, uh, these how you count the attacks. This one here in verse one is the fifth attempt to kill David that we come across by Saul. And there are going to be eight of them, initially trying to persuade Jonathan to murder David, knowing that Jonathan loves David. But they bite, he doesn't, he doesn't care. He's so messed up in his head, he doesn't care that his son loves David. Can you kill him anyway? It's irrational. Well, that's what the devil is very good at, making human beings irrational. Sin will make a fool out of all of us, given the chance. He's so bloated with self He's no longer, he's not even bothered by what other people think about such a request. A normal person would say, how am I going to ask these guys that want to kill this guy for me without, you know, looking bad? Now he just comes out and says, hey, I'm the king and I have a good idea. Uh, Let's kill David. Or you you do it for me. And so only his opinion matters. That's how he got to this place. He doesn't care about what... Uh, other people think, or the friendships that they have, kill him, says the maniac monarch, and uh, likely saying to Jonathan, you know, David's going to take the throne that is meant for you to have. Well, excuse me, Dad, meant to me, meant by whom? You or God? Uh, Jonathan, as we read in last session, he knew David was going to come to the throne, and he was willing to be uh, subject to David. Saul would have none of that. He says, all of his servants. What a wasted staff meeting. Instead of saying, how can we build up defenses against the Philistines? And then we have got, you know, this country over here and this group of people over here. How we? No. Let's just take the whole kingdom and center it on one man's life to assassinate him. And he wanted others to hate David with him. And David had to live with people thinking that he deserved to be assassinated. This was character and physical assassination that Saul put on the table. He wanted people to hate this man so much that they just went out and finished him off. He chased him because God, David's heart chased God, so Saul chased David. That's what Satan wants to do. And this hatred is legendary. Again, we're grateful that we don't have this much information about Cain or one of the other many villains in the Scripture. And as we, when we get to the kings, we're going to get a lot of this. But why was Saul's hatred brushed over by the people, by the staff? Why didn't someone say this is a violation of God's word? Well, Jonathan will hint at that. Uh, but the question is, Why? Do they brush over this? It is because they were saying Saul has a sickness. It's really not sin. And he just needs time to work through this and encouragement. And we just need to keep the peace with him. And it will be okay. This largely explains why Jonathan remained by his demonically influenced father, even though Jonathan was a man of God. Jonathan hoped that Saul would one day come out of it. Samuel hoped, had hopes for Saul, and they failed, and Samuel moved on. But Jonathan's not there, and he's not going to get there either. Uh, Jonathan is very loyal. It says, but Jonathan, Saul's son, verse 1, delighted greatly in David. Uh, soon, Saul will also drag in Jonathan's sister into this convoluted drama that he is creating. But true friends bring out the best in each other. Whether it's in a marriage or just a friendship, comrades, you can't say that without feeling (laughs) rather Soviet about the whole thing. But uh, true friends, they do, they bring out the best in each other and they delight in each other. 
Jonathan would never harm David. And David wouldn't harm Jonathan. And it's sad that they never lived in a free environment where they could just enjoy each other's friendship and produce things for the kingdom of God. In verse 2, so Jonathan told David, saying, My father seeks to kill you. Therefore, please be on your guard until morning and stay in a secret place and hide. Well, that's good advice, but... Uh, you know, of course, the historian is just com- com- compacting everything into these verses that we have. But he's saying, yeah, he wants to kill you. But remember, David, he's not well. That's, again, how they're thinking. David's even bought into some of this. He's playing the music to kind of soothe the beast. But what needed to happen is someone needed to stand up. This man is a murderer. He's intending to kill his brother without a cause. He needs to become un- come under the law of God, king or no king. But nobody could do that. And you could say it. It's nice on paper. But when it comes to working with real human beings, it's different. And so it pained Jonathan to have to face this fact. And he's going to struggle with it a little bit more. But he can sidestep it no longer. And here is Jonathan, the warrior. The warrior that turned his, the possession of his own armor, his personal armor, over to David. The gallant man from the battlefield, he's naive here with, with dealing with his, his father. And, well, they didn't have First Samuel to read about a character like this to know better. We have it, which takes excuses from us sometimes. When we see somebody that is sinning, it's a sin. And we're not going to sugarcoat it. It doesn't mean we're going to stone the person, but it doesn't mean we're going to Pretend it's something other than what it is, which is what everybody seems to be doing with, with Saul. And it gets out of control. It just goes off the charts. If they nipped this thing in the bud, it might have had a different outcome. <clears throat> so again, why would Jonathan? I think it's very important for us to, to, to ask this question. Jonathan, the man you are, why are you <clears throat> loyal <clears throat> to the man that Saul is? Excuse me. <coughs> That's better. Well, is it because blood is thicker than water? I mean, he's your dad, so you're going to always just be loyal to him? Well, of course, there's some of that there, but I don't, that's not all of it. Uh, was it because the culture would shame you to no end if you abandoned your dad and you would be an outcast from your people? Uh, that's part of it, too. These are the things that Jonathan had to face. Was it because... You felt that you could influence your father and help him, and the day would come where he'd no longer be that way. I think that's the big part of it. I think that he is the eternal optimist. That hope springs eternal. And he just, you know, just we can get him right. It's just going to take time. And so Jonathan was loyal to Saul as a son, but he was also loyal to David as a friend. And so, I mean, he pulled it off. He managed to do both. He had this passion for David, but he had this loyalty and duty to his father. And he would not kill David as his father wanted. And he would not kill, kill Saul, his dad, as would have benefited David. Nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else. That's the story. The man was a man of honor, and he, he, he was strong, uh, They say, or at least I'm saying, the stronger are the bonds of human love than many things. But sometimes duty is stronger, a sense of duty. Sometimes a sense of this is is right, and it has to overrule my passions, my love. And that's where he remained loyal to his father. That was his duty, and he remained loyal to... To love, that was his duty to David. And you, it's hard to find people that will stick with you no matter what. I don't, when I say no matter what, I, I mean, of course, within, it doesn't mean you could just go and start slaughtering people. And, oh, don't worry, I'm still your friend. But it, it does mean that there are, there are those people in life that will stick with you. They are loyal. They are noble. And they look for solutions. And they don't rush off and abandon uh, someone whom uh, they've, they've drawn close to. 
And that is the story of Jonathan and David, and it is also the story of Saul and Jonathan, his son. And from this duty, he never flinched. He will die atop of a mountain next to his father because he remained loyal to him. And yet he never lifted a finger against David or an evil word against David. He never contributed to, any, to anything that would have harmed David, not directly, indirectly. It's okay, David, you can go back and play now. And uh, I don't think Dad's going to throw any more spears at you. Well, he was wrong. And so, he says at the bottom of verse 2, Therefore, please, be on your guard until morning and stay in a secret place and hide. And uh, so, having done nothing, David has to, has to hide. He has to run for his life. He has nowhere to go yet, but it's not over. Verse 3, And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak with my father about you. Then what I observe, I will tell you. And so there's the hope springing eternal. Let me talk to, let me talk to Dad. I think I can get through, with, through to him and point out you're actually a hero of Israel, not an enemy to the throne. And, um, you know, hope... It, it combines uh, expectations and desire, things that you want and, and things that you think will happen. And this is where Jonathan was at this time. He says, then I will observe and I will tell you. So he's doing his best uh, to make things work right, to, again, come up with a solution. Saul will bring out the worst in everyone around him. He's, he's just going to manipulate the situation and it won't work. Verse 4, Thus Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant, against David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his works have been very good toward you. Incidentally, on the subject of loyal and duty, what good are the two if they don't work under pressure? What, what good is being loyal to someone if you're going to not be loyal as soon as things get tough, when they need you to be there? That makes me turn the searchlight on myself, too. You know, have I been disloyal? Have I been quick to abandon my station when I should have stayed there and done more? Uh, I think we all should, from time to time, consider that. Well, here, Jonathan spoke well of David. You can just see the face of Saul. He could not object. He's hating it, but he you knows like, I don't have a, I, nothing I can say to that. And so Jonathan is applying himself. He's one of those people that is just, I'm going to try to work this through to lessen the hostilities between these two men that I love. And he, he loved his father. There's no indication he did not love his father. He just was stuck with him. Um, it would have been nice if he was David's older brother. <laughs> That's not how it turned out. Uh, these are wonderful words, but they're wasted on a man like Saul. And Jonathan is going, here's the, naive, the naivete here, that he thinks that dad is going, to, is going to register. Well, John's Gospel, chapter 18. Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well... Why do you strike me? And so there's a, an example of Christ reasoning with those who are opposed to him, but they don't want to hear it either. They're going to kill him. They've made up their mind. There's nothing he could do. He could have levitated all of them. None of, they, wouldn't have, they still would have, oh, after the levitation tomorrow, we're going to kill you. Because sin was that deeply set in them. And it wasn't because they, you know, they were victims of sin. And we're all victims of sin. They were, they were, they signed off on it. They turned their back to when God, when God says, come, let us reason, though your sins are red as scarlet, I will make them white as snow. They turned their back on that. And so, uh, reasoning is not Saul's problem. Sin is Saul's problem. This is internal. He's stiff-necked. And this will be temporarily effect, uh, effective, but, that, but it, it will backfire and balloon. It will get worse. Verse 5. For 
He took his life, he's talking about David to Saul, for he took his life in his hands and killed the Philistine. And Yahweh brought about a great deliverance for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood to kill David without a cause? So I got the cause things in in a few verses earlier because there's just so much to keep on. You've got to kind of spread it out. So he says, basically he's saying it's one thing for David to kill Goliath in defense of the nation. It's another thing for you to kill David. That's murder. And you know it. <laughs> but he's saying it. He's diplomatic about his, how he's pre- presenting this. He, he's saying, Dad, you were there. He, he killed the Philistine. Nobody else wanted to do that. Why would you want to hurt the hero of Israel? You saw it and you rejoiced, he says. Why, why hound the innocent? But then he adds, why then will you sin against innocent blood? Well, this goes back to Deuteronomy 19. You, you know, this is murder. And it's going to bring guilt That's what he's trying to say. To kill David without a cause is going to bring guilt on you and us. Acts chapter 10, Peter preaching. He says, How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all Things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. He did all these good deeds, and what did he get in the end? You killed them. They had such a difficult task, those apostles, to preach the deity of Christ without sounding like they were preaching, uh, you know, idolatry or just some other weird. They They had this task that... Uh, the Holy Spirit sort of just carried them through. All they had to do was be witnesses of what they knew they saw in Christ, and that's what they did. And it worked, and the church is here to this day. And wherever the church is being the church, her message is powerful. Even if the, the people are not, the people have problems. You all, of you, you all of us have one problem or another. At some point in time, we have problems. Yet the message never has a problem whenever it's preached as it is supposed to be preached. And uh, we, do, we do well to remember that. Should we face direct persecution, we do well to remember it is the message we are to deliver no matter what. And persecution comes in so many ways, subtle and, and direct. Verse 6, So Saul heeded the voice of Jonathan, and Saul swore, As Yahweh lives, he shall not be killed. When I hear Saul talk, I wonder, is, is he sober? I mean, because it's just, he's so erratic. He's just so all over the place. He's, he's mood swings. He's all messed up in his head. And, uh, and he's given into it. I mean, you can be messed up in your head and not give into it. Or you can be messed up and, and just let it sort of take over your life, which is what he did. Well, he's encouraging his son, Jonathan, with a false hope. Jonathan thinks, you know, he's like Neville Chamberlain. He's coming back from Germany. I've got to sign treaty. Hitler's going to be our friend. And that ain't going to happen. Saul, he's saying, okay, you got me. I can't give you a reason why I hate David so much I want to kill him. Okay, I'll behave. (laughs) But his fingers are behind his back, crossed. He's a shallow man. He's a liar. He's a heartless murderer. And soon... He won't tolerate such conversations. That's where this is. He's getting darker. It's just a Dorian Gray kind of picture. You know, just getting darker and darker, which with each movie makes. And uh, this happens to this day in people, especially those who are very uh, evil. Uh, And Saul, it says here in verse 6, swore as the Lord lives, as Yahweh lives, he shall not be killed. He's again invoking Yahweh's name. And coming from him, it means nothing. He is, he is beyond compromised. He is demonized. Not demon-possessed. Because Satan, Satan, I think, has a... You know, it hasn't been stated outright that David's going to be the line for, by which Messiah shall come. He knows he's from Judah. And he's getting the suspicions 
that the formation of this line is taking place in David. This is my take on this. And it explains to me a lot of what's going on. Because Satan doesn't want to overplay this. If, he's, if, he, if Saul becomes too demonic, they'll deal with him like they did with Nebuchadnezzar. And he'll be out of the picture and David will not be persecuted. And so there's this demonic balance, this strategic attempt to kill David through the king without having the king go overboard. And that's how the story works out. Uh, you may object to that, and, and that's fine. I'm, that's why I'm telling you. This is as I'm looking at this, you know, I'm, I'm always asking myself, as I'm, I would think you would too, why is this happening like this? Why am I given this story? What do I see here that's real to life? And what can I do with it? And when I, I try to get all of those lined up on every single verse, and, it's, um, and then try to go do it, and say to God, as the years roll by in our Christian service, no matter what, God, I just want to be useful to you. I just want to be spent useful to you. And I cannot, I don't have it. Uh, but, I, but you do. And uh, that's good because that means I'll never feel in possession of it and always dependent upon the Lord and as we are for food, shelter, and, and clothing which can be destroyed, too. That can be twisted. Prisons give you food, shelter, and <laughs> clothing, and it's still prison. So the application, of, the application of truth is vital. Anyway, verse 7. Then Jonathan called David, and Jonathan told him all these things. So Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as in times past. So Jonathan's got this big smile. He's just happy. He's got the, his dad and his, his beloved friend just shaking hands. And this life's going to be great. And you, you feel for Jonathan. Because it's not going to happen. Uh, you can be brave on the battlefield and still a bit naive. Um, you can't, and on the other hand, you can't blame him. You, you, you want a Jonathan to be a peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called the sons of God. And he's, he's doing just that. So David is now back. Uh, they pick up where they left off. Soothing Saul with music, which didn't work the first time. Either David was really bad at music and <laughs> Saul wanted to kill him for it. Or Saul is insane with, with sin. And that's really what it is. The, the, the maniac king. And... I have a saying, I don't know, I picked it up somewhere in life. Maybe, maybe you picked it up somewhere else. But if you want the same results, just keep doing the same things. And they're back to doing the same thing. And they're going to get the same results. Now, application, as I mentioned, the truth, application of truth is vital. Uh, there, there are times that where, you know, you, you have to know how to apply the truth, which is the whole exercise from the book of Proverbs as to how to apply the wisdom that is being shared because it doesn't, it's not cookie cut. You have to pay attention, you have to participate, and you cannot jettison truth and integrity and duty and loyalty and love. There are many tools that must go into that box to make you and me successful or more successful at serving the Lord. And so here's Jonathan, brave, loyal, hopeful, Unrealistic in this matter, but optimistic. And if you listened, you can hear a ticking noise coming from Saul. It's the bomb. He's a time bomb. And I remember in ninth grade, I had a friend, Wade. And we, we, we so Wade, what did the teacher say when she talked to you about your report? And she said, Wade says, you know what she said? She said it was a bit far-fetched. <laughs> that was just a riot for the rest of the year. Anything that would happen, it's far-fetched. And, well, that was Jonathan's hope for peace. It was a bit far-fetched. And it's uh, quite comical. Anyway, uh, pretenders like Saul, they're always unstable on the inside. Outwardly, they can, you know, they smile. They, they, they can be noble and sincere until they're unmasked. And Saul will do that. Verse 8, 
And there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a mighty blow, and they fled from him. (laughs) So back to normal, David resumes his task. He, He fulfills his assignments. He's faithful with the little things. He's faithful with the big things. He's faithful. God is with David instead of with Saul. David is drawing closer to God. Saul is drawing, going further from God. And everything David sets his hands to. Right in front of Saul's face. God is with him. And Saul hates him more for it. And uh, it's, it's, it's... What would the story have been if Saul became a man of God? The whole history would have changed. But you can't get caught up in life like that. With the, you know, what if this and what if that... It would just hound you. Um, uh, you. You just have to work with what you have. And that's the story of when, for example, when Jesus took the fish and the bread and multiplied them, he worked with what he had from a divine standpoint. And then he handed them to the disciples and they worked with what he gave them. And that's how the story went. Verse 9, Now the distressing spirit from Yahweh came upon Saul and he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing music with his hand. There it is again. You just <laughs> when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask, David, did you, could you play the harp in any other way than with your hand? Well, I guess he could say, well, it was the flute. Well, he's still harmonica with the little bar, if he was also playing a drum. Okay. Um, I had to do that just to take a little break because this is kind of intense. And I have to tell you, sometimes when I'm preaching in the pulpit, I can, I can sense Satan talking to me. It was a distracting thought. And it's, it's usually just stupid and unnecessary. And uh, it's nice to just break off for a moment and then come back fresh. Uh, but anyway, uh, verse 9, this distressing spirit is back. The consequence of disliking God. That's the key. It's not just Saul, just, you know, I'm just going to do my own. He disliked God. And David loved God. And so the demons are hounding him. He says, with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the music with his hand. What a contrast, right? One has a spear in his hand. The other is trying to play a, a soothing note. But there's so much here. He's got a spear in his hand. He's in his own house, in his own palace. It's like he takes his pistol out and he's twirling it while David's playing music. Seriously, he's saying, why is he weaponizing himself in the safest place on earth for him? This is the safest place in the world that Saul can be, in his own house. And yet he has a spear with him because he's paranoid. Because the evil influences are taking over his head. And yet I think he's enjoying it. It's spiritual, and that means it's internal. It's deep inside. It's in the heart. And so if you were to say to Saul, you shall love the Lord your God, as it says in Deuteronomy 6, with all your heart and soul and your strength, uh, Saul would have none of that. David lived for that. So these, uh, this is similar to the events back in chapter 18. We've been here before. And... Verse 10, then Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he slipped away from Saul's presence, and he drove the spear into the wall, so David fled and escaped that night. Well, what did you think? was When he he unholstered the pistol, somebody's going to get shot at with this guy. Anybody else, you can say, don't do that. It's it's not a toy. You can say, Saul's there with a spear. Why? This is the sixth attempt to kill David, and the time bomb just went off. So David fled and escaped that night, thinking, man, he's just sick. No, no, he's sinful. And it, it just I don't know that David ever really, really got it either. We look back, we get it. But David loved him and knew him, and they looked for reasons for him not to be what they, what they were looking at. You know, you, sometimes you're just too up close to the, to the event to see what's going on. And again, he deserved nothing to, to, to receive this treatment. 
He's not being punished by God. He's being punished by Saul. And that's another thing Christians learn from this story. There are times we think, why is God doing this to me? Well, God's not doing it to you. Well, then why is he letting it happen to me? Well, I find that there's a lot of questions God does not answer. Uh, the instructions stand. It's like that in the military. You don't go up to a general and say, what were you thinking? The beaches of Normandy. What was that about? You know how many men died there? I mean, you, just, you don't do that. And these patterns and parallels, they exist and there's no way around them. So you better find a way to work within them and, and make something happen to the glory of God. I, that, that's how I approach. Okay, I can't do anything about this, but I can do something about this. And so I'm going to focus on this one, and that one's going to just do what it's going to do. Unless, unless I'm called into action and I can help. And uh, this is the power of praising God outside of a mood. I don't feel like praising God. I just lost my job. Or uh, I just did this. So this just happened. Or whatever. I'm not in the mood to praise God. Well, that's where the battlefield is. And uh, we all have to face it. If you're going to serve the Lord, you're going to have to, you're going to, have to do that. Uh, or you're going to not serve effectively. And in time, it will... It will, it will do more, it will take more from you than it will give to you. You'll miss opportunities, and then you'll learn those hard lessons. So try to skip them and just remain strong no matter what. God is, this is the making of a man of God. That's what's going on here. He's not the only one to face such situations. We read Romans 8, you know, God causing all things to work together for the good. We read that, but I just don't want it to be happening to me under negative circumstances. But that's largely out of my hands. Hebrews chapter 5. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Now, when we discussed Hebrews, I hope I made it clear that Jesus really didn't learn anything because he was divine. But he went through them in front of us. So we learn by how he endured these things, how he faced these things, how he subjected himself any hardship Jesus faced, he's really the only human being, well, human God, God in human form. He's the only one that genuinely subjected himself to maltreatment. The rest of us were born and we have to face these things. He could have just left. He could have just said, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to have this happen today. He could walk up to a tree and say, no, no fruit on you? Okay, I put fruit on you. <laughs> but he, he so when you think about it that way, at least when I do, I'm encouraged by it. Um, our sense of justice wants Saul punished. But our sense of faith wants what God wants. And we can't go around, Lord, shall we call down fire on this village? Because after you smoke that village, you get to the next one. You know, they didn't have milkshakes there. Let's call fire on them. <laughs> it just gets out of hand. So... Our grace, the, our sense of grace wants what God wants. We want the solution. We want reconciliation. And if we can't find reconciliation, we want victory under the circumstances. This is the lesson from the life of Joseph. It's the lesson from the life of Jeremiah. It's the lesson from Romans 5.8. It's the lesson from Paul. I know how to, be a, to abound. I know how to be a base. And all things I have learned. And uh, that's where we are supposed to go. I have cried out to God in frustration. Well, I'm not Paul. <laughs> I don't have his courage. I don't have his faith. And then get up and go do what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> I find it works better that way than staying angry, uh, especially with God. Who has hardened himself against God and prospered? Job asked. No one. And Saul is a walking example of hardening one, one's heart against God. Verse 11. So also, uh, Saul also sent messengers to David's house to, to watch him and to kill him in the morning. And Michelle, David's wife, told him, saying, If you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. Okay, so here's the seventh attempt to kill David. And these are not messengers. These are assassins. Uh, so, I mean, maybe they do messages on the side, but on this night, they were going to kill David. And he sent messengers to watch the house. So now he's, he's, he's off the rails. 
you know, okay, I, I did it Jonathan's way. <laughs> it didn't work. I still want to kill him. <laughs> it's insane. He is obsessed with killing David. And and now it's, it's, you know, Jonathan is, he knows. It's, it's done. Where, where it says, And Michelle, David's wife, told him, If you do not save your life tomorrow, you will be killed. She loved what she saw, the outside of the outside things of David. She loved that. She loved his charm, you know, they, the way he cut onions up while she fried the meat. You know, things like that. They just, she liked them. But she did not care for David's heart being after God. So again, we go forward to 2 Samuel. Now, as the ark of Yahweh came into the city of David, Michelle, Saul's daughter, looked through the window and saw King David leaping and whirling before Yahweh, and she despised him in her heart. And then verse 20, then David returned to bless his household. And Michelle, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids of his servants as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. She couldn't wait. She came out to run out. She's just venomous. She never had it in her heart. She's an idolater, too. That's going to come out in a moment. Many a spouse is stuck with a spouse who refuses to be Christ-like in Christ's name. You just keep looking for the solutions in Christ because he is faithful. And verse 12, so Michelle let David down through a window and he went and fled and escaped. And so I brought this up to say Michelle loves David outwardly and it's all it's going to sour as David the timing of it. He's throwing himself into Yahweh and she is blocking it. He comes home to bless the house and she blocks it. Uh, she's just, you know, the, the reaper of darkness. Um, she becomes that. Here she's saying, she must have word got to her. They're going to kill David. And so she gives him a heads up. And in verse 12, where she lets him down and he flees because of the weasel king that created this mess and unrest for everybody. Of course, verse 12 reminds us of Rahab letting out down the spies and Paul being led uh, over the wall at Damascus. Verse 13, And Michelle took an image and laid it in the bed, put a cover of goat's hair of its head, and covered it with clothes. Well, she hopes that these assassins are not too bright, and they'll look in, oh, there he is, let's go stab him. And uh, evidently, these carved images are sizable. I mean, to tuck under the bed with some blankets to make, oh, well, not blankets, goat hairs, uh, they're sizable. This creates a problem. That means David knew these were in the house. Uh, this rem- there are features of the story that remind us of Rachel and Jacob and Laban, Saul, Michelle, and David. Um, it takes too much time to, to go into, and you, you can do them on your own. But uh, David knew about her idolatry, but he's a young man. And I don't think he knows how to work through these things yet. He will. But, you know, sort of choose your battles, give it time. But this disdain for these things, they were always there. Psalm 26 is a psalm of David. I have not sat with idolatrous mortals, nor will I go in with hypocrites. As he's aging, he's learning to put his foot down on these things. I think it's part of, uh, you know, you get someone that says they're a Christian, and then they're checking the paper for the horoscopes and, you know, on your honeymoon. It's like, whoa, I thought you were a Christian. Huh? Too late. We said the vows. It doesn't work quite like that, but it, it does. Uh, Psalm 101, verse 3, another psalm of David. I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. That's idolaters, apostates. It shall not cling to me. So here she had these idols, because that's what she was about. And uh, David had to have known they were there. Why did he tolerate it? Well, it's easy to sit back and guess 2,000 years you know, later and say, well, you should have done this and you should have done it. You should have read the book of Romans or something. So, verse 14. So when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he is sick. So she lies because her father's created this situation. And David is sick with dread, she could say. (laughs) She wanted to sugarcoat the lie. Uh, But she is not a heroine. 
She's not a woman to, well, I'm going to be like Michelle and lie when I'm under pressure. Uh, this is a mismatched marriage. But verse 15, uh, many are, uh, thus the vows. Verse 15, then Saul sent the messengers back to see David, saying, bring him up to me in bed that I may kill him. Well, Michelle knows Saul kill her because she was going to kill his firstborn son, which, whoa, who does that? Saul does that. And uh, she, she knows. She's terrified. Uh, Saul brings nothing but terror. So he sends messengers back saying, bring David to me. Attempt number eight. I've lost count. That might be nine. Either way, it's a lot. Uh, the full-blown wickedness. Who needs demon possession? When you've got somebody so into the flesh, they do they behave this way. And I think, again, as largely Satan, well, you know, he would have to get permission from God anyway to totally take over Saul. Uh, but who would need to? Saul is just doing Satan's work just this way. Let's not overdo it. Verse 16. And when the messengers had come in, there was the image in the bed with a cover of goat's hair for its head. Surprise! <laughs> <laughs> they didn't think it was funny. Verse 17, Then Saul said to Michelle, Now he's not standing there, this is probably the next day, Why have you deceived me like this and sent my enemy away so that he has escaped? And Michelle answered Saul, He said to me, Let me go, why should I kill you? Oh, great. So, Saul turns everything to him. You know, why have you let my enemy go? Why have you deceived? Well, that's my husband. And a normal mind would breeze it while my allegiance is to him. For this reason, a, you know, a man shall leave his husband and mother and father. Not his husband. Uh, just my enemy. It's always about Saul. I, I think it's a great song for a young person to live to. Yesterday when I was young. One of the lines goes this way. In every conversation I can now recall concerned itself with me and nothing else at all. Whoever wrote the song had, just had in mind a wasted life. So much talent just wasted on fun. And then the years roll by. And uh, I think of, whenever I hear the song, I think of Mickey Mantle. That was just a fine Oklahoman boy and boy from Oklahoma. And he got with uh, some of the bad chaps whose names you wouldn't recognize. But I'm going to tell you anyway. <laughs> Billy Martin. But anyhow, let's uh, just go back to this. Uh, Michelle answered Saul. He said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? So now David is made to be, uh, you know, the killer. He, David never said anything like this. And she's covering herself, but she is vilifying David. But Saul terrorizes his own house. Proverbs eleven twenty nine. He who troubles his own house will inherit the wind. And that is Saul. Because he gets nothing in the end. Uh, C.S. Lewis, I think, is the one that's... Oh, I, I don't... Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was Lewis. Satan's objective is to give you nothing in the end. And that is the truth. Verse 18. So David fled and escaped and went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and stayed in Naioth. Well, <clears throat> uh, the righteous man goes to the righteous man, to the prophet Samuel. Samuel doesn't know this is going on, evidently. And Saul has ad the advantages. He has the resources of a kingdom. But David has the man of God. And you say, well, a lot of good that did David as he's fleeing. Well, it, a lot of good it did because in the end, David's the last man standing. You just had to wait. And what a lesson in life is that? That you can go through a long stretch of life, years, struggling. Here, they're portrayed together. The Holy Spirit is indicating that God and his prophet side with David. We look for these things in desperation when we're struggling. God, just tell me if I'm right or wrong. Is it me or is it them? I know it's them. It's always them. So, Saul. Uh, Saul will have to... To get anything out of Samuel again, Saul's going to have to go to a witch. <laughs> That's how messed up it is. Hey, David, Samuel hears this, his heart breaks again when he hears about Saul chasing David like this. You know, the temptation in prolonged struggles is to feel that our prayers are useless, that they're bouncing off of heaven's 
like heaven's got this brass ceiling there, and our prayers just bounce off of it. And uh, Saul said, God is laughing at me. I mean, that's Saul. Job, Job said that uh, in his own words. Um, and many other things. He's so down in the dumps. But what would happen if going through prolonged struggles, you stopped praying? Well, Saul is what would happen. That's what happened. Saul stopped praying. We don't read about him seeking God. He's seeking to kill God's man. And so prayer may not change my circumstances, but it always affects change in me. It always does. It can be invisible. Um, my understanding is uh, hair grows without us knowing it. And so do we on the inside in the spirit. Verse 19. Now it was told Saul, saying, Take note, David is in Nioth in Ramah. So he has always, the wicked always have their little tattletales, their little pipsqueak assistants ready to help the evil along. They, they wouldn't help push righteousness down a hill, but they'll help push wickedness up a hill. It is uh, the craziest thing. Um, it will get worse. We still have to meet Doeg a few chapters later. Nioth in, Ram, in Rama. Rama was Saul's home. Nioth appears to have been a district in uh, Rama where the school of the prophets and their dormitories were. And so David goes to, to Rama where Saul's, Samuel's house is. And Samuel says, well, come with me to the, you know, the, the seminary. That's really not what I want to say. The school of the prophets, let's put it that way. Verse 20, Then Saul sent messengers to take David, and when they saw the group of prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as leader over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. So here's attempt number nine, or something like that, where he's sending these assassins to... to, to Samuel's hometown to kill David. Think of the craziness of this. Psalm 76, verse 10. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. And there, there it is. You know, they've come to kill David. And they, they get this, they, they show up and they see Samuel leading the prophets in song and praise and probably scripture reading or reciting. That, it's not foretelling. It's, they're not, you know, thus saith the Lord, this is going to, you know, a cat's going to come out the door and, uh, that, that's not what's going on. First uh, Chronicles 25, the first few verses will give you an idea of the context of that word prophecy. It's not always in the predictive context. And uh, Philip's daughters, when they prophesied uh, in the book of Acts, they were singing songs and quoting scripture. Uh, that's under the umbrella of, of prophecy. There are, there are different forms of prophecy. But it would be foolish to think that they all had something <laughs> to say about the future. Um, anyway, the sight of Samuel ignited something, and they come up, and there's Samuel. Can you imagine this old man's leading these men in, in worship? John's Gospel, chapter 7. The officers answered when they sent to arrest Jesus, and they came back without him. Well, where is he? The officers answered, no man ever spoke like this man. We couldn't arrest him. He said, we were blown away. And, and that is what is happening here, the Spirit of God. Um, they're not, again, forth, uh, foretelling. They are forth-telling, telling the, singing the praises of the Lord. It is not unheard of to see unsaved people sing alongside of the saved people and remain unsaved. They come to churches and they sing hymns right next to people who are saved and they go out and back to their car and they're not, long, they're not any closer to being saved than they were before. And so to see these men come to arrest, come to arrest uh, David and then be taken in the spirit, uh, that's not out of the ordinary. Not that they weren't. They may have changed after this. Too bad they didn't send these guys to Elijah. Because <laughs> you know what happened. Verse 21. And when Saul was told, he sent other messengers, and they prophesied likewise. So then Saul sent messengers again a third time, and they prophesied also. So now we're up about 10 or 11 times of him attempting to kill David. He's sending more what? I'm going to send more men to kill him. And they're just going there and they're catching the spirit. Their heritage is in Israel. They're probably hearing songs maybe they heard as children growing up. 
And they were just, you know, uh, humbled. All of this is going to give David a chance to get away. It's not wasted. Verse 22. Then he also went to Ramah and came to the great well that is at Siku. So he asked and said, where are Samuel and David? And someone said, indeed, they are in Naoth in Ramah. So here's his 12th attempt to kill David, him showing up. Uh, Siku, who was on the way to Ramah, who knows where exactly. Uh, you know, hey, David, if you, for you young men and young, you know, you have to learn life. You learn life by just sticking with God through these circumstances. David is running for his life. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He knows the promises, you know, but still, somebody's going to kill him. He doesn't know what's going to happen. Uh, and, he, and someone said, that's what we read here in verse 22. Again, evil always has its tattlers, its assistants, and uh, helping him along, Saul, that is, who is out for himself. Verse 23, so he went there to Naoth and Ramah, and the Spirit of God was upon him also. And he went on and prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. So God put a shield around David. The Spirit is just so active at this point that no one can resist. Just, they, they cannot, the evil is not free. The evil is blocked. It is shouted down. That's what we're seeing. Um, Saul won't get around this shield on this day. So we have the prophet, the king, and the hero all in, in one scene. And the Spirit of God, sovereign over all of it. And if we were living as David in that time, we, we would be, you know, God, where are you? What's going on? And, and yet looking back, we say, David, don't worry. God's got all of this. That's helpful to remember when we go through things. <laughs> I had a bloody nose today. It took forever to stop. And so I'm wondering, I'd be kind of a bummer to bleed to death in my office. But, you know, you just, just silly things like that. Everything gets to be intense after a while when it's not going your way. So I'm measuring. I'm saying, okay, I got how many pints? <laughs> anyway, uh, verse 24. And he, uh, now I don't want people to come checking on me. <laughs> Knocking on my door. Hey, what are you doing in there? Huh? What? Huh? <laughs> Sleeping. What do you think? Verse 24. He also stripped off. This is Saul. He also stripped off his clothes and prophesied before Samuel in like manner and lay down naked all that day and all that night. Therefore, they say, is Saul also among the prophets? Too much information. <laughs> I just I was good with him just lying down. Well. The real thing that's happening here is God is reaching out to Saul still. He's still getting a chance. Uh, you know, how do you pray? How do you pray if you're David's father and you know this is going on? God, can you kill Saul? <laughs> I mean, just I mean, just kill him. And, and God is saying, I'm giving him chances. Well, you know he's not going to take it, so why not skip a step? <laughs> God says it doesn't work that way. I could lay it all out to you, but you'd still object. So, because uh, God can't change Saul without Saul's consent. He's not going to force anybody to love him, to be under his care. This will be the last time that we read about God's spirit on Saul. But back to chapter 15. And Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Well, Saul came to see Samuel. And you cannot say that this was a friendly engagement nor is there any evidence that they engaged each other. The spirit sort of just took over. And uh, Saul was uh, humbled. He was subdued by the spirit of God. Um, just in looking back at all this, here's David under the protection of Samuel the prophet and the school of the prophets, which we cheer Saul, he personally goes because his jealousy and his hatred and his fear of David is so deep in him. He, if his servants can't kill him, then I'll have to do it myself. But he gets there, and the next thing you know, he's in the spirit. He's probably singing the songs along. He knows the folk songs of, of Israel, and of course, Yahweh is central to those songs. And so he, 
he loses control of himself, control of himself in the sense that his objective was to find David and kill him. Not to stop and just, you know, robe and, and lay there on the floor praising God, which is, you know, you say, that doesn't sound real. Well, if I know my Bible, it says, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess. I have no problem with this. When God wants to turn it on, it turns on. And there's nothing anybody can do to stop that. And so he loses his self-consciousness. He remains conscious, but his self-awareness of what he wants to do, the control that he has over his life, falling helplessly on the ground like this. Um, Yet... At the end of this, he comes out more venomous. He does not improve. So really, God is giving him a chance. He's slowing him down so David can get away. Why doesn't God just send a lightning bolt and just... We, we, you can ask those questions forever. You won't get an answer, uh, usually. And so death and terror will mark his association with anyone that he is afraid of from this time forward. Really, it really begins to change. And uh, he will grow increasingly homicidal and intolerant of anyone that slips into his paranoia as David's ally. And may we never waste our lives like the man Saul wasted his. Let's pray. Our Father, quite a story, a lot of information, hard work to get to these things. But worth it, at least, uh, at least I think so. I, I know those who love your word and love you appreciate the lessons that fly off the pages. May we do something with these things to glorify you. May we be strong in the faith and may we all get home safely this evening, Lord, because of you. In Jesus' name, amen.